Welcome to another episode of Yay, Nay or Meh, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And it's deeply ironic that the second episode where I've deliberately split off the cinematic releases from the streaming releases, theoretically in order to release them quicker, happens to coincide with a week where so many delays happened that I didn't finish watching the cinematic releases until Tuesday. So it's still very, very late in the week by the time I'm releasing this. This was the week where the touring programme of the London Film Festival had its schedule over at the Watershed Cinema in Bristol, going to the cinema to watch this week's releases whilst fitting it in and around the London Film Festival programme was tricky. There was a live football game on Sunday which was very inconveniently timed, but I had to see it. It was Everton versus Manchester United. I am an Everton fan. My brother's a Manchester United fan, so we have to watch that together, no matter how inconveniently timed it is. And I also realised that my ancient feed burner feed, which is how I distribute this podcast, had stopped working. So I needed to spend some time figuring out how to fix that. And the last episode in this feed, the horror streaming special, was available a couple of days after it was released. But I think it's fixed now, so yeah, lots of stuff got in the way and I didn't finish watching this week's cinematic releases until Tuesday. So yeah, best laid plans of mice and men and all that kind of stuff. But nevertheless, despite how late in the week it is, I have four cinematic releases to discuss in this particular episode. We have the action epic featuring underrepresented corners of society, The Woman King. We have the small-scale American indie film with quite an agenda, Vengeance. We have David O. Russell's latest film, Amsterdam. and. A quirky British comedy about a typical British eccentric, The Lost King. So, without further ado, let's get on with today's reviews. Cinema Reviews The first film I want to talk about today is The Woman King. And before I talk about the film itself, I want to lay out my theory as to how this film came to exist in the first place. Black Panther came out in 2018 and it was a gigantic success, proving categorically that Marvel producer Kevin Feige had it completely wrong. And if you put superheroes on screen who aren't just white men, you can have success. And suddenly people wanted to cash in on this. I mean, oh God, this is huge. What else can we do? 
And one of the breakout things in the Black Panther movie was the all-female bodyguard troop of Black Panther, the Dora Milaje, with their leader being played by Danai Guerrero. People started realising that these Dora Milaje were kind of inspired by some genuine all-female warriors from history. The Agogie, or the Benin Amazons, as the Western world called them, in the 18th century in the kingdom of Dahomey, which is now modern-day Benin. And people started investigating these things. Lupita Nyong'o, one of the stars of Black Panther, went to Benin and made a documentary about the warrior women of Benin. And I'm sure that either sparked interest in people or increased interest in people. And suddenly a movie about the Agogia was put into production. So basically, I think this film, The Woman King, which deals with female warriors and black warriors, neither of which have been well served by cinematic history, is largely down to the fact that Black Panther was such a success. Directly and indirectly, you can credit Black Panther for this film, The Woman King. Which is directed by Gina Prince-Bithwood, who in the early 2000s had a string of very small-scale but very successful films revolving around African-American women. Love and Basketball, The Secret Life of Bees, and Beyond the Lights. All well-respected, but relatively small. I think what really put Gina Prince-Bithwood into the mainstream was a TV series she created with her husband, Shots Fired. And it should be pointed out that her husband, Reggie Bithwood, is no slouch himself. Back in the day, he wrote... Spike Lee's Get on the Bus. So, with her profile increased enough, Gina Prince-Bithwood was the somewhat surprising choice of director for Netflix's comic book adaptation, The Old Guard, which was pretty cool and enough of a success that when another female-fronted action movie came up, and a female-fronted black action movie came up, Gina Prince-Bithwood was the obvious choice, and she got to direct this film. From a script written by Dana Stevens, who has an interesting CV, she wrote the American version of City of Angels. Her last script was the Kevin Hart family drama on Netflix, Fatherhood. So, an interesting writer, but again, not perhaps the obvious choice to make an action movie, but that's where we are. It is the early 18th century in the Kingdom of Dahomey in West Africa, and Viola Davis is a general. She is the warrior who is trying to protect the kingdom and protect the new king, John Boyega, 
who is essentially a usurper, although he does have a decent claim to the throne, but he needs to make his mark, he needs to be protected, and his general, Viola Davis, is the one to do that. She is assisted in her military duties by her two lieutenants, Sheila Atim, who is Viola Davis's best friend, and possibly, I think if you wanted to read into it, possibly a bit more than just friends with Viola Davis. And also there's Lashana Lynch, who is a good warrior, but has a bit more of a sense of humour, has a bit more of a cynical attitude. And Lashana Lynch is in charge of the new recruits. And following a battle at the beginning of the film, we are in need of new recruits. So new recruits are brought into the Agogier compound, and we as an audience get to see how the Agogier function. And the teenager who we are following mostly is Tuzo Mbedu, who has dreamed since she was a little girl of becoming one of the Agogier. But Dahomey is surrounded on all sides by factors who do not necessarily have their best interests at heart. The much larger Oyo Empire is encroaching on their borders, led by ruthless general Jimmy Odukoya. And there are also Brazilian slavers who regularly show up on the coast led by Hero Finds Tiffin, who has brought a friend with him, played by Jordan Bolger, who is Brazilian, but his mother was a Dahomean slave, and he wants to visit his mother's homeland now she has died, and is horrified at the slave trade he sees going on. So can the Agogier, led by Viola Davis, fight back against the powerful Oyo Empire and keep their people from being transported across the ocean on slave ships. I was a little concerned about The Woman King because I had seen that documentary that Lupita Nyong'o did about the Agogier. And as portrayed in that documentary, the Agogier were not necessarily a group of people who need to be praised or promoted. They were brutal warriors. They stamped out any rebellion against the king. There was a lot of forced conscription into the Agogier, and they were involved in the slave trade. Every kingdom in West Africa at that point was involved in the slave trade. If you captured your enemies on the battlefield, you sold them to Europeans. And that's just what went on. So I was concerned that this would be a sanitised version of life in 18th century West Africa. And it is a little bit, but not as much as I feared. They do make comments that, yes, the Kingdom of Dahomey did sell slaves, although it's one of Viola Davis's things that we could make so much more money if we start mass-producing palm oil, which was one of the great assets of West Africa. So, yeah, we don't need to do slavery anymore, and 
one of the things that John Boyega did, I mean, one of the excuses he had for basically having a coup was that his brother, the previous king, was selling his own people to the Europeans, and he's not going to do that. So these are people who, yes, they have been slavers, they are still kind of selling their enemies to the Europeans, but maybe we don't want to do that anymore. So that's a little bit sanitised. And the whole forced conscription thing into the Agogia is not dealt with at all. I mean, there are three young women here. I mean, Tuzu and Beidou, the girl we are most closely following, I mean, she's dreamed of being the Agogia. She wants to be a warrior. One of them is a young woman who is captured at the opening battle. I mean, she's basically a prisoner of war and she's got no other options. I mean, if I go home, I'm going to be nothing. I may as well be a warrior here. And the other girl who we see going through the training of the Agogia is an orphan who essentially has no other options. So there's no forced conscription on screen here, but yeah, that's that's definitely something which the real-life Agogia did do. But there is good stuff here. I mean, I've seen this film compared to things like Gladiator and Braveheart, and yes, there is elements of that here. I mean, really good fight scenes. Gina Prince-Bithwood did not use as much CGI as most action movies do nowadays. All of it was done in camera with you know, actual people. And it does make a difference. It does look so much better than the majority of action movies out there. I do like the fact that we have somewhat complex characters. I mean, John Boyega is the king, but he is still very unsure of his status. He still needs to make his mark. He still needs to make a statement, increase his legitimacy, because he is a usurper. I mean, yes, he seems to be a good king. He seems to be a better person than the last king. He still needs to get and maintain control of this situation. And he's very unsure and leans heavily on his much more experienced general, Viola Davis. So the character is there. The more we see of Viola Davis, the more we realise that this woman has some severe traumas in her past and is not particularly dealing with it. So yeah, I mean, there, there's some interesting you know, 21st century psychology which I think goes into this. But I think this does lead into one of the problems I find with The Woman King. And that is, towards the end of the film, or actually throughout a, a loss of the film, it tips a little bit too far, for my taste, into the realm of Hollywood melodrama. There's some very, very Hollywood stuff in this. Certain characters turn out to be a lot more connected than they have any right to be. I mean, this person just happens to show up and they have a direct and deep connection to somebody who is already there. And the coincidence of that is staggering and I don't quite buy it. There's a sequence towards the end of the film which remind me a lot of Quentin Tarantino's Django Unchained, because the big climactic fight scene, which again, most of it done practically, 
very good, very visceral stuff. Essentially, they burn a slave port to the ground. Victory over slavery, and this is the mid-18th century, but it's still a good 30, 40 years before that was more or less entirely stamped out. So, But at least for this film, yes, we burnt the slave port down, we've rescued all the slaves. They will be reunited with their families, or at least some of them will be, because, of course, somebody has to make a heroic sacrifice and give their life for their fellow humans in order for them to escape. But you know, burning a slave port to the ground, it's yeah, a statement, but I think it glosses over the fact that this is by no means the end of slavery, and yet we're, we have to have a, a statement made against it. As there is a speech at the end of the film, I mean, John Boyega gives a speech at the end of the film about human dignity and about moving forward, we, are, we shall not sell slaves, we shall sell palm oil. Uh, and it, it's rousing, it's impassioned, it's all these things. I mean, the, this is a kingdom which will thrive and survive. But within 50 years, French colonists had come in and the kingdom of Dahomey was essentially no more. And yeah, I think it's taking the small victories it can, but it still feels very, very Hollywood. I mean, this is a positive outcome of a story, which is still right in the middle of the slave era. So yeah, I think it's a slightly polished, slightly sanitized, slightly Hollywoodized version of this story. But the action sequences are very, very impressive. I mean, the hand-to-hand fighting, it's very cool. I like the fact that Tuzo Mbedu, more often than not, uses her ingenuity, uses her smarts in order to impress the general Viola Davis. I mean, this girl who has dreamed of being an agogier from childhood. And she wants to be the best, and she kind of is the best, but she still uses ingenuity more than sheer brute force, and that I like. So, yeah, there's good stuff here, but I do think it's a little bit too Hollywood for my personal taste. So, The Woman King should still be available in cinemas. I did like it, and for me, it's a pretty high math. Next up, we have the small American indie movie, Vengeance, which was actually quite difficult to get to. I needed to go to Chippenham in order to watch this, which I have only ever had to do once before. There were very, very few cinemas that I could get to that were showing this film. But regardless, this is written and directed by B.J. Novak, who is most famous for appearing as an actor in The Office, but he has a long CV of various comedy programs. But this is his feature film debut as writer-director. I mean, he has directed a few episodes of The Office in the past and a couple of other things like The Mindy Project, which he was also in. But as a feature film, this is BJ Novak's directorial debut. And he also stars as a somewhat cynical, somewhat elitist New York journalist slash podcaster 
who is floating through life, hooking up with random girls on random dating apps, having vapid conversations with people who are just like him at New York parties, saying everything's 100%. Frankly, he's a bit of a douchebag. Late one night, he gets a phone call from a number he doesn't recognise, and the voice on the other end of the phone says, I'm sorry, I've got some terrible news for you. Your girlfriend is dead. BJ Novak is incredibly confused by this. He doesn't have a girlfriend, but it turns out that a girl he hooked up with a couple of times in New York went back to Texas and is now dead. And her family is convinced that this guy in New York was the love of her life and is now insisting that BJ Novak come from New York to Abilene, Texas in order to attend this girl's funeral. So BJ Novak, this cynical elitist New Yorker, ends up in the middle of Panhandle, Texas, with Boyd Holbrook, his hookup's older brother, taking him to the funeral. And on the way back to the airport, Boyd Holbrook says, look, I know that she was the love of your life and I need to tell you something. It wasn't an overdose. I think my sister was murdered and I need you, New York Jewish elitist BJ Novak, to help me take out vengeance on the people who did this. And suddenly a spark goes off in BJ Novak's head. He thinks, hang on a minute, there's a podcast here. So he gets into touch with his podcast producer Issa Ray and says look this Texas family is absolutely convinced that this girl wasn't an overdose she was murdered this is a story about conspiracy theories how they thrive how they survive in these idiotic redneck minds and Issa Ray agrees this is a good idea so they start working on a podcast called Dead White Girl And BJ Novak hangs around in Texas and interviews the family of the dead girl, her sisters, Isabella Mars and Dove Cameron, baby brother Eli Bickle, mother J. Smith Cameron and grandmother Luann Stevens, as well as the local Mexican drug dealer Zach Vila, and a record producer who has set up shop in the middle of nowhere, played by Ashton Kutcher, who set the dead girl, Lyo Tipton, on the path to pursuing a music career in New York. So BJ Novak starts investigating and starts sniggering, basically, at these ill-informed Texans. But then he starts to kind of believe it. He starts to wonder if, hang on, maybe she was murdered. Am I coming at this from the wrong angle? So what kind of truth can be uncovered for? This girl that BJ Novak barely even knew, but suddenly he's the boyfriend and he needs to take vengeance. And can he, and is there even vengeance to take? So this did look interesting. I did make the efforts to make a special trip to Chippenham in order to watch this. And I was actually rather impressed with this film, Vengeance. I think this is a good statement 
about the state of modern America. I mean, that is one of the things that BJ Novak specifically says. I mean, I am a New York Jewish journalist slash podcaster. I am the person who will uncover the soul of America. I will investigate this story. I will find the truth. I mean, I can uncover something. I can unlock something about America. It is my job, my duty to do this. He's a pretentious twat, but that is the attitude he has. And yet, BJ Novak, as writer-director, I think does kind of approach this, because nobody comes off clean in this. I mean, yes, the Texas environment he finds himself in is very, very different, and in some ways very uneducated, ill-informed, caring so much more about college football than literature or art. And yet there is there was a, a lovely little scene where BJ Novak is talking to one of the dead girl sisters, Isabella Amara, and BJ Novak starts explaining the concept of Chekhov's gun. If you have a gun in the first scene of a play, it must be fired by the third scene, is paraphrasing. And he starts trying to explain this, and then this you know, quote unquote redneck girl, Isabella Amara, says yeah, but Chekhov didn't actually use guns in his plays a lot. I mean, it wasn't in The Cherry Orchard, it wasn't in Three Sisters, and B.J. Novick says, well, yes, I haven't actually read any of Chekhov's plays. So he's got all these misconceptions, and equally, the Texans have misconceptions about B.J. Novak and the relationship that B.J. Novak had with the dead girl, Lyo Tipton. Everybody's working at cross-purposes. Everybody has a complete lack of understanding about the other side and a complete lack of wanting to understand the other side. And the fact that BJ Novak is making a podcast called Dead White Girl is made comments of. I mean, BJ Novak is taking potshots at both sides. And you know, the conspiracy and how it all plays out, I mean, it's some entertaining stuff. I mean, at one point his car gets blown up, his Prius gets blown up and suddenly, oh, maybe I'm onto something. So he sticks around and continues to investigate. And eventually we come to some kind of conclusion. And it's actually a very bitter, very cynical, very nihilistic conclusion about the state of modern media and the state of modern online content and social media and podcasting. In the advent of things like Serial, TV shows like The Jinx, the commodification of characters, I mean, even something like Tiger King, which, let's not beat around the bush, the success of Tiger King, I believe, is largely down to self-proclaimed, educated, self-proclaimed elites laughing at the funny redneck. I think that's largely what Tiger King is about. And yes, I'm not immune to that. But this is the situation we live in. And the conclusions that BJ Novak comes to as writer in this film are biting. I mean, there's a speech towards the end of the film. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but it essentially boils down to everyone has a take. If you don't have a take, you don't have a voice. If you don't have a voice, you don't exist. 
everything is about opinion. Everything is about broadcasting your opinion. Everything is about having your opinion listened to. And if the real-life people get turned into caricatures whilst you're doing that, so be it. And that's the situation we're in. And, yeah, that is ultimately so nihilistic and bitter and cynical about the modern discourse and the modern online discourse. And, yeah, BJ Novak is just throwing his arms up and saying, to hell with a lot of this. This is a terrible situation and there's no way out of it now. It's fascinating stuff. I mean, I think the comments that this film Vengeance makes about this kind of environment, about this kind of divide between a New York podcaster and a Texas redneck family and the intersection of that and how that has complete misconceptions about what's going on. I mean, and also misconceptions about other things. I mean, when BJ Novak goes to this recording studio in the middle of nowhere, run by Ashton Kutcher, he has a message to his producer, Issa Rae, saying, yeah, this is going to be stupid. This is going to be fun. Can we get rights to that Rebecca Black song, Friday? I'm sure that's going to be something like that. But then Ashton Kutcher actually in the recording studio, he approaches genuine profundity. There's some genuinely good comments that Ashton Kutcher has where he was educated in New York, but decided, I know how to produce music. I know how to get artistic talent out there. And a place like the Panhandle of Texas actually needs it more than New York. So I'm going to go home and I'm going to provide a service to the artistic types in my local community. And BJ Novak is actually rather impressed with Ashton Kutcher. And we as an audience are also supposed to be impressed with Ashton Kutcher and how articulate he is, how impassioned he is. He seems like a decent enough guy. And and that is so completely different to what BJ Novak was expecting going in. So, yeah, it's very much about misconceptions it's very much about prejudice and overcoming those misconceptions and prejudice and still not coming to a very satisfying conclusion so yeah this is a film which is decent for most of it i mean the mystery the conspiracy theory is an entertaining ride but then at the end when all this stuff comes up about perception and the divide and how these divisions are so rigid now that there's nothing that can be done about it and having new york attitudes about texan people and having texan attitudes about new york people it's gone too far now and yeah there's there's some stuff towards the end of this film which i think is genuinely interesting genuinely impressive and i did genuinely like vengeance I have no idea if this is still going to be available by the time this podcast comes out, but if it is, and you can find it, I do actually recommend Vengeance. I think this is a really good movie. And I do say that Vengeance is a yay. 
Next up, we have a film which I think is definitely angling towards being Oscar bait. It certainly has some Oscar pedigree in its filmmakers. But the reviews of this film have not been kind, and I don't think it's going to be any kind of contender at all. It is David O. Russell's new film, Amsterdam, who has Oscar nominations to his name for The Fighter, Silver Linings Playbook, and American Hustle. But this is David O. Russell's first film for quite some time. His last feature film was Joy back in 2015 and he hasn't made a feature since. And he has come back with this film, Amsterdam, which is inspired by a true story. The opening title card of the film Amsterdam is A Lot of This Really Happened. So, yeah, I think the veracity, the historical accuracy of this is a little bit up for debate, but it is definitely inspired by something that really happened or supposedly really happened. It is 1933, and a World War I veteran, Christian Bale, is eking out an existence as a low-paid doctor in New York, helping veterans, helping disabled veterans from the war with surgeries, with prosthetics, and with quite a lot of pills. But he is doing something for the forgotten generation of veterans. He is helped on this quest by a black lawyer friend, John David Washington, who was in the same mixed regiment in the First World War. But in the First World War, black soldiers had to wear French uniforms because black people couldn't be seen wearing American uniforms. But Christian Bale and John David Washington were in this military unit together and they got grievously wounded in the First World War. Christian Bale lost an eye and they were nursed back to health by an American nurse, Margot Robbie. And in the immediate aftermath of the First World War, Christian Bale, John David Washington and Margot Robbie ended up in Amsterdam and lived an idyllic simple life, distant from America, distant from the racial politics, because John David Washington and Margot Robbie are so into each other, but this is 1933 and a black man and a white woman cannot have a relationship in America. But eventually this halcyon period has to come to an end and Christian Bale must go back to New York to reunite with his society wife, Andrea Reesborough. Andrew Reesborough's family despise this half-Jewish doctor who has stolen their daughter away, and it was his father-in-law who strongly suggested that Christian Bale enlist, hoping that he wouldn't come back, but he has, albeit very scarred. And this sets off a chain of events. So eventually it's 1933, Christian Bale is eking out an existence as a doctor. John David Washington is a lawyer for the black community in New York. And nobody's seen Margot Robbie for quite some time. One day, John David Washington and Christian Bale are approached by a woman, played by Taylor Swift of all people, who says, 
My father was your general in the First World War, played by Ed Begley Jr. And Ed Begley Jr. has just died. I don't think it was an accident. I think he was murdered. I want you to do an autopsy. So, wanting to honour their old general, John David Washington and Christian Bale do an autopsy, assisted by autopsy nurse Zoe Saldana, and try to give the results to Taylor Swift. But on a crowded New York street, Taylor Swift is actually pushed in front of a van, and the person who did it shouts, They did it! The black guy did it! And obviously the mob descends, and Christian Bale and John David Washington had to run for their life as accused murderers. And they have to prove that not only did they not murder Taylor Swift, but that Ed Begley Jr. was murdered. And they feel the only way they can prove their innocence is to get in front of a highly respected veteran general, played by Robert De Niro. So the quest is on to get in front of Robert De Niro so Robert De Niro can vouch for them because he did meet them when they were in Belgium. And along the way, wouldn't you know it, they get reunited with Margot Robbie who has been hidden away by her brother Rami Malek and Rami Malek's wife, Anya Taylor-Joy, because you've got this nervous condition. You, you need to be at rest. You need to hide away. You need to be locked away, essentially. And John David Washington and Christian Bell said, well, she never had a nervous condition when she was in Amsterdam. But, oh yes, no, don't worry. The doctor will be coming along to give you your pills later. So, yeah, she's in a bad situation. and. Margot Robbie, John David Washington, and Christian Bale try to get in front of Robert De Niro, try to prove that they weren't murderer, and in doing so, they manage to uncover a gigantic conspiracy which reaches to the very, very top of American politics. So, can they acquit themselves of murder? Can they uncover this conspiracy? And can a half-Jewish, one-eyed doctor, a black lawyer, and a white society ex-nurse find happiness. This is a rather strange experience, watching Amsterdam. It's trying very, very hard to be a screwball comedy. It's trying very, very hard to have all these interesting little things going on, having all these interesting asides and comments and confronting certain things. I mean, the fact that John David Washington and Margot Robbie are clearly into each other, but they know this is 1933, a relationship between us cannot work. The fact that Christian Bale and Andrew Riesborough, I mean, if they ever were in love, the fact that Andrew Riesborough's rich father despises this half-Jewish guy who's taken his daughter. And whether this existed before or after Christian Bale came back from the war, Andrew Riesborough has developed a severe fetish about injuries and about scars. So even if we do end up together, is it just because of my scars? I mean, these are the kinds of quirky things that happen in these kinds of movies. We have odd side characters like a couple of spies 
an American spy played by Michael Shannon and a British spy played by Mike Myers who get involved in the situation and just stand off to the side with weird comments to make. I mean, basically what I'm describing here is a Coen Brothers movie. And if the Coen Brothers had made this film, I think it might have been substantially better because the Coen Brothers know how to do this kind of quirky, know how to have this vast ensemble cast doing lots of different things, going in a hundred different directions at once, and bring it all together. The Coen Brothers can do this kind of thing. David O. Russell can't. He is a very, very different type of director. And when he tries to do this Coen Brothers-esque screwball comedy, it just doesn't work. There's far too much stuff going on. This is a very busy film. The plot doesn't necessarily make a great deal of sense. I mean, getting in front of Robert De Niro in order to clear your name doesn't make a massive amount of sense, but we need Robert De Niro for the big scene at the end, which I'll be getting onto in a minute. Having all the stuff about Margot Robbie and her family locking her away and essentially drugging her. I mean, it's very obvious what's been happening to Margot Robbie, you know, having this nervous condition, you know, Oh, you have epilepsy. I've never had a seizure. No, you have epilepsy. Have these pills. And suddenly she does have vertigo. She does have trouble concentrating. It's obvious what's going on. She is 100% being gaslit by her brother, Rami Malek, and her sister-in-law, Anya Taylor-Joy. Who is brilliant in this? I mean, it's not a particularly big role for Anya Taylor-Joy, but she saunters into the screen looking incredibly Aryan and detached and icy and yeah having this very antagonistic relationship with her sister and all you know oh no hide away you know we, you need to be locked up you need to rest and yeah it's all these things and the comments that this film wants to make about the racial politics of the time about a black man and a white woman falling in love and that just not being possible and equally the fact that christian bale is clearly attracted to zoe saldana Yet he's married. Yet there is this complication. They've been living apart, thanks to Andrea Reedsborough's father. And on the rare occasions they do get close to each other, it's so much more about his scars than who he is for Andrea Reedsborough. So that all gets complicated. So, yeah, we have a couple of mixed-race couples, or a couple of potential mixed-race couples, in 1933. So, I mean, that's a very salient point. But ultimately, I think what David O. Russell is trying to make a comment about and why he chose to make a film about this particular incident, which happened in 1933, I mean, the real-life incident, which has been highly, highly fictionalised in this film, Amsterdam. But this real incident revolves around a conspiracy, and a conspiracy which has modern-day parallels, or at least in the last few years when I'm sure David Russell was filming this. The emotional climax of this film is a speech that is given by Robert De Niro, this highly respected retired general who has led political movements wanting to get we are the people who can provide that stronger society for you. Don't believe them. They are rich. They have their own agenda. and 
the political climate, even the press, society at large, is going to allow this shit to go down and the rich people have the potential to take over. Now, doesn't that sound like 2016? And that is the thing that I think David O. Russell wanted to make a film about. And he chose this very obscure little thing in 1933 and made a film about it. But (sighs) at the end of the day, Amsterdam is chaos. There is far too much stuff going on. There are far too many plot threads to be brought together into a satisfying whole. There's far too many characters, far too many quirks. And David O. Russell, I just don't think, can handle it. Very early on, as I was watching Amsterdam, I came to the conclusion that this was a Coen Brothers movie. And if the Coen Brothers had made Amsterdam, it might have been a masterpiece. I think they could have controlled themselves and controlled the narrative. But this film got way out of David O. Russell's hands. He couldn't rein everything in, and it ends up being utter chaos. It does have some valid points. It does have some really great moments of very good acting. That Christian Bale is excellent. Robert De Niro in a small role is also pretty good. The intentions this film has are laudable. I just don't think the delivery mechanism of the film as a whole entirely works. So, yeah, Amsterdam is interesting, but ultimately it's a little bit of a failure. So I still think it's worth watching for the message and for some of the performances. But really, Amsterdam, which is probably still in the cinemas by the time this comes out, is a solid, but could have been better, meh. And then we come to The Lost King. I find it curious that The Lost King and The Woman King came out in the same week, but anyway, The Lost King is the latest film from Stephen Frears. Highly respected, if a little bit workmanlike director from Britain. He's got a couple of Oscar nominations to his past for The Grifters and The Queen, but more relevant to this particular movie is Stephen Frears directed Philomena, which was written by Steve Coogan and Jeff Pope, who got Oscar nominations for the script for Philomena, and they come back writing this movie and Stephen Frears directing. And this is the story of Philippa Langley, played by Sally Hawkins, who is the woman who uncovered the grave of Richard III. She is a mild-mannered office worker. She's a woman in her 40s, so she is constantly getting overlooked at work by her mildly obnoxious male boss and has a somewhat frustrated existence. One day, she accompanies one of her two sons to a performance of Shakespeare's Richard III because her son needs to write an essay on the play. So. She reluctantly goes to this play, but once the performance of Richard III on stage is going on, with Richard III being played by Harry Lloyd, she is enraptured. The idea that this disabled, 
character hates himself so much that he can't look in a mirror strikes a chord with her because one of Sally Hawkins's problems is she suffers from ME. So that's one of the reasons why she's constantly being overlooked at work. And this strikes a chord with her and Sally Hawkins develops an obsession, arguably an unhealthy obsession with Richard III. She joins the Richard III Society, people who were desperately trying to prove that Richard III was framed by the Tudors, and goes on a quest to not only vindicate Richard III, but also she becomes obsessed with trying to uncover the grave of Richard III. Much to the exasperation of her ex-husband, played by Steve Coogan. So this amateur, who doesn't have a background in archaeology, goes up against the monolithic archaeological community, tries to get in touch with the archaeology department of the University of Leicester, run by Mark Addy and administrator Lee Ingleby, but is pushed away at every turn. But through sheer determination and grit and obsession, Sally Hawkins manages to dig up that Leicester car park and uncovers the body of Richard III. And all the while that Sally Hawkins is doing this, she is having visions, she is having apparitions of Richard III as played by Harry Lloyd and occasionally even has conversations with the apparition of Richard III. So this determined, eccentric woman goes on a quest, and it actually works out. It has to be said, the story of Philippa Langley and her quest to uncover the grave of Richard III is compelling. This woman who, against all odds, actually managed to do it, went to this Leicester car park and there's an R on the ground for Richard or reserved parking, but she knows that this is where Richard III is. And against all the obstacles, against all the objections to the archaeological community, and it has to be said, the archaeological department of the Leicester University has virulently complained about this film and their portrayal in it, but anyway, this one woman, this one amateur, rather eccentric woman, manages to get it done. And it's impressive. And it has to be said, I think Sally Hawkins' performance in this film is excellent. In some ways, she is a rather meek, rather mild-mannered character, but when necessary, she has no compunctions about confronting the people who are in her way. She confronts her boss, Lewis MacLeod, at the beginning of the film when she is overlooked for a promotion. Later in the film, she is unafraid about confronting the archaeology establishment or the historian establishment, saying, no, actually, you've got that wrong. I, I've actually read the books in the Leicester Archive. But she's still eccentric. I mean, she has these feelings. I mean, you know, the notorious story, which was portrayed in documentaries that were shot at the time, you know, her utter conviction that this R on the ground in this car park, this is where Richard is. I mean, it's 
it's a little odd. But Sally Hawkins, I think, plays it all brilliantly. I mean, the determination, the eccentricity, the fact she is obsessed with this and knows she's obsessed with this and tries to hide it from her ex-husband, Steve Coogan, who, you know, they have a good relationship and eventually, for financial reasons, even though they're not together, Steve Coogan moves into the house and starts sleeping on the couch because they needed the money from his flat. So, I mean, it's a good relationship. I mean, the epitome of how ex-partners should interact with each other. And it's all really, really good. But the thing I'm somewhat ambivalent about in this movie, The Lost King, is the inclusion of Harry Lloyd as the apparition of Richard III. And that is how Sonny Hawkins describes it. You are an apparition. I know you're an apparition. Please go away. But eventually she talks to Richard III and what these conversations are, what this apparition is, I think changes from moment to moment, from scene to scene in the film. Sometimes it is just the sounding board. It's a tool for exposition. I mean, it, it's Sally Hawkins talking to Richard III, saying, you know, you had this hunchback, or people saved you had this hunchback. I mean, I've got ME. I have a chronic health condition too. So. These conversations allow us as an audience to know these things that we need to know about the character. But at certain points, it is kind of a, an incipient mental illness kind of feel. There's one scene where her youngest son witnesses her talking to the apparition. So that's you know, a, a portrayal of mental health issues, potentially, and it changes from moment to moment. And Honestly, I'm really not sure having this apparition of Richard III following her around adds enough to justify its existence. I mean, yes, it does add something because it's a valuable tool for certain pieces of exposition, but it just gets weird. And this is sort of like a gentle, cosy film, you know, one woman struggling for her rights and struggling to get her perspective listened to i mean constantly being patronized by the establishment constantly being patronized by man but struggling through and continuing nonetheless that's fine but adding this extra thing of seeing visions of richard the third I think the issues outweigh the benefits, and at the end of the day, I just don't think that was a good decision. So, Sally Hawkins' performance is brilliant. This determined, somewhat eccentric, somewhat strange woman who has these conflicting things, I mean, sometimes being very, very meek and sometimes you know, standing up for herself in very forceful ways. It's a, a pretty steady personality trait with sudden moments of determination and confrontation and Sally Hawkins plays it brilliantly I think she's once again proves just how good of an actress she is but the film it's good but it does have these 
structures in place. I mean, as I said, Leicester University have strongly complained about this. I mean, Jeff Pope and Steve Coogan wrote a movie about the patriarchy, about being overlooked because you're an amateur and a woman, and that doesn't seem to be exactly what happened, but it makes for good cinema, or I guess the idea is it makes for good cinema. So, yeah, it's it's a reasonably slight film, but it does have an excellent performance from Sally Hawkins, and I think it's entertaining enough. Don't think it needed the apparition of Richard III, but so be it. So, yeah, for me, The Lost King, which should still be in cinemas, is a pretty solid, if a little bit flawed, meh. New releases. It's a strange week at the cinema this week. There's a few films, all wildly different from each other. The one film out this week that I'm definitely interested in seeing is Emily, which is a biopic of Emily Bronte and starring Emma Mackey. So that's a combination which sounds really, really cool. Also released this week, and I'll probably see it, but this definitely, definitely looks like a kid's movie, is Lyle Lyle Crocodile which is based on a series of children's books. But this stars a giant CGI crocodile who gets uncovered by a family who moves into a new apartment in New York. But it turns out that this crocodile can sing. And when it sings, it sings with the voice of Shawn Mendes and the lyrics and music of Paysek and Paul the people behind La La Land and Greatest Showman. So, yeah, for the singing, probably maybe worth it. But, yeah, this definitely looks like a kid-friendly rather than a family-friendly movie. But I'll probably check out Lyle Lyle Crocodile. And technically released in two weeks' time, but there are so many, quote-unquote, preview screenings available that it may as well be released this week and i'm desperate to see it so i probably will see it as early as possible it is park chan wook's film decision to leave his feature-length follow-up to the masterpiece that was the handmaiden and this latest film decision to leave got him a best director award at the Cannes film festival and yeah, I'm a huge fan of Park Chan-wook and I can't wait to see his latest film. Which follows a detective who goes to the mountains in order to investigate a murder and becomes involved with the man's widow. Now, the widow is played by a Chinese actress, but she's been married to a Korean man for some time, so whether she's playing a Chinese or a Korean, I'm not exactly sure, but either way, this detective becomes obsessed with the widow of the victim, and that's basically about as much as I know about Decision to Leave, but yeah, I am very, very curious about Decision to Leave. So those are the only cinematic films newly released this week 
On Netflix, the biggest film this week is probably the kid-friendly Halloween movie The Curse of Bridge Hollow, which stars Marlon Wayans as a dad who has to deal with all the Halloween decorations coming to life in his small town. I mean, that sounds very silly and very family-friendly, but I'll add it to the list. I'm probably not going to get around to it anytime soon. There's also a couple of foreign language films which have just been released onto Netflix, which look somewhat interesting. From Brazil, we have a film called Someone Borrowed, which takes a very, very old premise. In order to get in good with his grandmother and not be written out of the will, a slacker hires an actress to pretend she's his fiancée. And to make the fiction work, she moves in with him. And of course, they're not going to fall in love in real life, are they? But yeah, sounds pretty basic, but could still be fun. And there's also an Indian film called Do Bara, which is interesting because it is an Indian remake of the Spanish film Mirage. How the hell did that happen? <laughs> and that's making me quite interested in seeing it because I did watch the Spanish film Mirage, which I think is still available on Netflix. And I didn't actually like it very much. So, yeah, having an Indian version of this same story, I'm wondering if the Indian remake can actually improve on the issues I had with Mirage, which is kind of a sci-fi mystery story about a woman who sees a strange thing on her television and she realises that this giant storm which is going on at the moment is exactly the same as the giant storm that happened 12 years ago when a boy died. So communicating with this boy in the past, she says, look, don't do that thing, you're about to die. And of course, the butterfly effect, everything goes to shit. So yeah, I didn't like Mirage and I'm curious to see if I will like the Indian version Do Bara. So that has been added to the list, although it's not going to be a massively high priority. Released onto Disney Plus this week is a film called Rosaline, or Rosaline, which is an interesting angle taken on classic literature. It stars Caitlin Deaver, who is an actress I'm a huge, huge fan of, as Rosalind, who is the woman that, in Romeo and Juliet, gets dumped by Romeo in favour of Juliet. And this film, based on a YA novel, takes the idea that Rosalind wants Romeo back, so she does absolutely everything she can to break up Romeo and Juliet. And the fact that it's Caitlin Deaver playing that role, and the film is directed by Karen Maine, whose last film was the excellent Yes, God, Yes, which I really, really liked. So, yeah, Karen Maine directing Caitlin Deaver in a story of Romeo's ex. I'm in, and I'm very, very curious about Rosalind. Released onto Shudder.com this week is a rather unexpected thing. Dario Argento is back with a brand new film. He has made a brand new giallo called Dark 
glasses, in which a serial killer is stalking sex workers on the streets of Rome, and one of these sex workers manages to escape his clutches, but in trying to escape, is basically run into a car accident by the killer, and when she wakes up, she's blind. And she teams up with a Chinese immigrant boy who was orphaned by the same crash in order to track down this serial killer and deal with him. So yeah, Dario Argento is making films in 2022, and apparently Asia Argento has a co-star role in this. So yeah, Dark Glasses, available on Shudder, looks kind of cool. And then we have a film which is being released onto Sky Cinema, which looks kind of interesting. It's called The Immaculate Room, and stars Emile Hirsch and Kate Bosworth as a couple who have agreed to participate in a challenge. If you can spend 50 days in this completely blank room together without leaving, you will get $5 million. So this couple, Emile Hirsch and Kate Bosworth, go in together and then you know, Secrets and Revelations all come out at the same time. I mean, basically this is a somewhat blunt, it has to be said, allegory for COVID, I think. But Emile Hirsch is a good actor, although in real life he's a bit of a dick, apparently. And Kate Bosworth is a decent enough actress. So yeah, I'm curious about The Immaculate Room. And since it is available on Sky Cinema, and therefore I can just click the button and watch it, I will probably do so. So yeah, that has been added to the list as well. But the cinematic releases for this coming week, which will most likely be in the next cinematic edition of this podcast, and the way things are going, it might actually be the next edition of the podcast full stop. But anyway, the next cinematic edition of this show will be reviewing Emily, Decision to Leave, and probably Lyle Lyle Crocodile. I may as well watch it. My other to-watch list of the things I've already announced has not changed since the last episode because I haven't had a chance to watch anything else. So, yeah, that is my to-watch list. Remains the same, and hopefully I will tick off some of that as well. But no need to repeat it here, so let's just move on with this episode. The Ace There was one yay in this particular episode, and as seemingly happens quite a lot, it's the most obscure and the most difficult to find film in the show. The one yay is Vengeance. BJ Novak's biting indictment of modern internet journalism the divides in America, both political, geographical, cultural. There's actually a really nice subplot or observation about the Six Flags company, which runs most of the theme parks in America. And the origin of the Six Flags is interesting, particularly since I know that the current owner of the Six Flags company is a man called Daniel Snyder who owns the Washington NFL franchise and for decades refused to change the name of the Washington Redskins until he was forced to recently to the Commanders, which is honestly a shit name. But 
He's also been accused multiple times of sexual misconduct, and he's been reported for essentially defrauding the NFL of money. So, yeah, Daniel Snyder's a lovely guy, and when you know what he's taken his company's name from, it kind of makes sense. But anyway, that's a massive tangent I've just gone on. But yeah, Vengeance by BJ Novak is a biting, nihilistic indictment of the modern world. And I think it works. I mean, yes, it's a little bit on point with the speeches which get said at the end, but that doesn't make them any less valid. And it's really, really fascinating seeing this all play out and seeing how both sides of all these divides are equally problematic. So, yeah, this is... A fascinating film. I really appreciated it, and I really hope you can find it, because as far as I'm concerned, Vengeance, which hopefully will still be in the cinemas by the time this comes out, you'll be able to find a cinema playing it, is a yay. So that brings me to the end of this show, and all that remains is to say this has been Yay Nay Omer, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com, or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod. And I'll see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure. Ah!